You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. Today, I am your host, Sloan Simmons, a partner out of Lozano Smith's Sacramento office and one of the firm's co-practice group leaders in litigation. Um, student issue is one of my favorites, and we are lucky today to have a, a great student issue, which is perhaps better characterized as one in the special education arena, which is school avoidance. And I'm honored to be joined by our two uh, guests today. Uh, first, Jennifer Baldessari, Senior Counsel out of Lozano Smith's Walnut Creek office. Jennifer's areas of expertise are students and special education issues. She's one of our best special education attorneys in the firm. Um, she didn't start as an attorney, though. She was first an aide in a kindergarten classroom, ultimately working with the California Department of Ed before shifting course to earn her law degree. And we're happy to have had her with us for I think four years now. Is that right, Jennifer? That is correct. Right, right. And our other guest from the field and, and, and one who will provide us some of the perhaps most important insights on this issue is Miss Susan Bishop. Um, Susan has 17 years of, an ex of experience in a variety of special education settings from public schools to NPSs, residential and home-based services. Um, previously uh, had a position with the Contra Costa County SELPA and is currently Director of Pupil Services for the Moraga School District and teaches courses at the university level in the education specialist and multi-subject credential areas. Did I get those right, Susan and Jennifer? Yes. Perfect. Yeah, perfect. Well, it's, it's great to have both of you with us today, but let's start with framing our discussion. What is school avoidance? Yeah, I... You know, I think that school avoidance is sometimes referred to as school refusal. And before we get into what is both, we have to understand what frames both. And initially, school avoidance really means the avoidance of stress related to a disability. Whereas in my opinion, school refusal means a behavioral component of the student refusing to attend school. So in my mind, I don't think that they're necessarily interchangeable. And every case looks different, but generally it's when children refuse to attend school um, or, or even to leave the house or to get out of the car when they arrive at school. Um, in one case, we had a student who would get out of the car at school but wouldn't enter campus fully. Um, and so the student may directly refuse school for a number of reasons related to school or, or unrelated, um, or the student might even complain of something different altogether, um, or a student may have difficulty communicating exactly what it is they're experiencing. But either way, it, it impacts attendance. Um, and, you know, and children may say, I don't want to go to school from time to time, but avoidance, you know, actual school avoidance goes deeper than that. So, so, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but Susan, as you're describing that, I could. It seems like there could be a, a, a range of situations where, while there's distinctions between school avoidance and school refusal, that we have students that perhaps have a little bit of both of that going on. Again, I think we may get into that, but is that a, a, a common occurrence? That's right, and the, and the terms are often used interchangeably, even though there is a, a bit of a distinction. So, framing the discussion with that, the, the kind of meaning of those terms. 
you know, out of the gates, what are some of the top myths or mistakes that, that arise when it comes to school avoidance? One myth is that it only occurs among high school age children. And, and this is possibly due to data that we have supporting an increase in anxiety disorders among children in, in this age group, in, in the age group of high school children. Um, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America says that anxiety disorders affect one in four children between the ages of 13 and 18. So, so that's pretty significant when planning wellness and counseling supports for high school children, but it doesn't mean that school avoidance is restricted to, to those ages alone. Um, in fact, there's a case from Lucia Mar Unified School District involving a nine-year-old. So we know that triggers may involve moving or changing schools, um, family stressors such as divorce or illness, um, events that happen at school, and these things can occur at any time during a child's life. Um, and also school avoidance is, is more common around transition time. So transition when a child begins school for kindergarten, um, middle school or high school transition, uh, or if we see a child who, um, who has moved schools um, or frequently moved schools. Susan, Jennifer, one of the greatest risks of my involvement in a podcast is taking us way out in the left field. So the, the next question or thought I want to pose to you, if it's totally irrelevant, just let me know and we'll move on. But you're making me think of, uh, as you talk about anxiety, depression, uh, data we're presently collecting, uh, as a general matter, you know, and I think of this because it feels like we see a story, a, a sad story in the news once a week, sometimes multiple times a week about students and anxiety, depression, sometimes suicide. Is the general trend an increase in anxiety and depression for our students in California and around the country? Or is that simply anecdotal because we're seeing more of it in the news? You know, it's, it's true that anxiety um, is definitely common, um, you know, and, and increasing in prevalence. Um, it's the most commonly diagnosed mental illness, and it frequently occurs with uh, school problems like learning disabilities and, and ADHD. Yeah, so children are becoming eligible more often under the categories of other health impairment or OHI for anxiety or depression. Because when a student manifests anxiety, it typically comes across as avoidance behavior of whatever the thing is that's causing that anxiety, and here that thing is school. And so when you say OHI, we're talking other health impairment, and when you're talking about eligibility as a grounds for becoming eligible for special education, right? Yes, that's correct. Now, uh, Susan mentioned the Lucia Mar case, Jennifer. Is there, could you flush out that case a little more? Yeah, actually, the Lucia Mar case is really an excellent example of how school avoidance isn't just a teenage problem. Again, that's that really is a myth. The case involved here a second grader when it was litigated, but the facts of the case really involved the student in his first grade school year. So in the first grade school year, the student was already eligible for an IEP, that's our Individualized Education Program, under the categories of autism and specific learning disability. The student was then increasingly absent or tardy to school during the second half of his first grade school year. Eventually, the family provided the district, Lucia Marr, with two doctor's notes explaining that the child had gastrointestinal problems and a sleep disorder, which was um, essentially causing the student's tardies and absences. Lucia Mar then held an IEP meeting to discuss the school avoidance issues in light of these doctor's notes. So they brought the doctor's notes to the IEP meetings and discussed it with the team and decided and recommended as a team 
to assess the student to determine if there were behavioral or social emotional components or even maybe a medical component to the student's school avoidance. And in this case, even though the district had offered to assess the student, the parents declined the district's offer to assess and uh, the child continued to miss school. So here we see the district offering to assess, parents declining the assessment, and the child continuing to miss school. So nothing was uh, happening in terms of supports to help this child get back into school. By February, we had seen the child missed 45 of the 109 school days that last year, which I highlight because, again, this was a child who was first, second grade aged, and we are not just seeing this as a teenage problem, right? Unfortunately, the case does not get into what the real cause of the school avoidance was because the district was only seeking the opportunity to find that out through the assessment process. It could have been due to a lot of factors, including behavior, maybe anxiety. Um, we can really only speculate at this point, but we'll cover assessments and IEPs maybe a little bit later on in the podcast. Thanks, Jennifer. Susan, with school avoidance, is it always going to be linked to anxiety? Um, the link That link is common, but no, not always. And, and it's important to note that some anxiety is normal um, in, in children and in, in adults alike. Um, you know, as children grow and develop and they experience new situations, they're trying to make sense of their world, some anxiety is expected. We, we wouldn't expect a child to never experience anxiety. But however, sometimes a child doesn't cope with anxiety adequately, or, or the child may experience a higher degree of anxiety um, that, that leads to um, symptoms that impact school, like uh, fatigue, irritability, um, sometimes physical symptoms. So that might look like a child, um, you know, complaining at school of a stomach ache or a headache, um, and, and ultimately even possibly refusing to go to school. So, so when anxiety is a factor, districts can rely on psychological assessments, um, for example, the Children's Manifest Anxiety Scale, to determine, uh, you know, the sources and the levels of the child's anxiety. So, you know, uh, we started out with defining school avoidance, distinguishing that where there are distinctions with school refusal. The other terms that seem, some other terms that are similar that seem to come up in this area is the idea of family systems versus family issues. I'm wondering if, if you two could distinguish between the two of those and then, and then describe what you see as trends um, in, in your day-to-day -day work and with other districts as to whether or not avoidance uh, the nexus of school avoidance to family systems. Yeah, and that's an important point. Um, and you know, I think it's important to note that it's it's kind of a misconception that school avoidance is caused by parenting or family systems problems. Um, oftentimes, we see school staff uh, blaming the parent for you know for not getting the child to school on time, or or you know the parent has failed in you know in getting the child to attend school. And that may be the case, you know, to to some degree or, or completely. But it's really not our job to determine that. And we definitely need to be mindful that tardiness and attendance issues may be indicative of, of underlying behavioral uh, and or mental health or, or even health concerns um, that trigger our child find responsibility. Jennifer, when we're talking family systems, that term, how, how, what's the best way to conceptualize that? Yeah, I think family systems really refers to what the family unit decides is important for their family. So for example, we see some family systems that hold school um, 
very important in their day-to-day lives. This is, uh, in fact, something that's come up in the Japanese culture a lot called hihikamori. I think Susan can talk about this a little bit more robustly than I can, but that's just one example of a family system holding near and dear the school system to the point where it may be causing some anxiety and pressure in children to excel at school, to be um, the next Steve Jobs, what have you. Uh, You know, that's more of a family system issue. When we're talking about family issues, we're talking about fracturing of the family. So in that sense, it could be the death of a parent. It could be uh, child custody battles, very, you know, tough family custody battles that are impacting school avoidance and other things. So when we talk about family issues versus family systems, we are distinguishing between both of those concepts. And a bit more on the on the um, the pressure or the pressure to achieve. And, you know, that might be uh, something coming from a parent or it might even be a student's perception of, of parent pressure. Um, there's been a bit in the news, as Jen mentioned, about Hikiko Mori lately um, in conjunction with acts of violence in Japan. Um, this term Hikiko Mori refers to uh, to adolescents or adults who withdraw socially um, and, and seek out isolation. So colloquially like shut ins or, or recluses um, and, and the Ministry of Education lists causes like emotional disabilities or, or maladjustment from changing schools, but but also uh, research kind of points to um, parent pressure um, or, or even um, factors like screen time or, or too much technology use as factors. So, I mean, it's, it's similar in the U.S. Um, you know, children may feel pressure surrounding grades, athletics, extracurricular activities. If a child believes that, you know, that a test he's about to take or a game or a performance will make or break uh, his future or his chance at college admissions um, or a scholarship, it, you know, it can cause a lot of pressure and, and negative consequences for, for the child. So it can be hard to determine if it's, you know, if it's a family issue or a student issue, but, you know, it really doesn't matter. The district's responsibility is the same. Jennifer, if we're talking about the nexus or on the other side of the coin, the misconception about how great of a cause school avoidance is driven, uh, is related to family system problems, How does that interact with the child find concept in the special ed world? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, First of all, I think it's important to understand what is child find. And it really is a legal term of art here, which we used to define as the school district's affirmative and ongoing obligation to identify, locate and evaluate all children who may be suspected of having a disability within their jurisdiction. This is a pretty low threshold in terms of how do we find and seek out these children. In fact, we have the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals clarifying this obligation for us to say that districts may not take a passive approach and wait for others to refer the student for special education services. In fact, the obligation really truly is affirmative meaning the district must seek out IDEA-eligible students. And by IDEA, again, we're referring to the Individuals with Disabilities Education and Improvement Act. That's the act that kind of frames a lot of our special education conversations today. Um, But how do districts seek out potentially eligible children? And I think that's something we want to ask ourselves throughout this podcast. 
which is um, one way, as Susan had suggested earlier, is to be aware of the indicators of possible disability, such as school avoidance. Um, we'll see a case, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, uh, the Berkeley Unified case that goes into, well, is school avoidance alone a potential trigger for child find? Also, as Susan had mentioned, school avoidance may be caused by underlying mental health or behavioral concerns, which significantly then impacts the student's attendance at school and thereby impacts the child's education. When facing a school avoidance issue, it's usually better not to take a wait-and-see approach, but to assess the child pursuant to child fine obligations. I always like to say, when in doubt, assess. That's how we meet our child fine obligations. Susan, I think we started to touch on this a little bit, but putting aside the family systems concept or even family issues, what are some of the student-specific issues that you're seeing as a trigger or cause for school avoidance by students? Yeah, um, there you know there are many, and it's it's kind of difficult to put them into categories because there's a bit of crossover. Um, so you know, for example, we talked about depression and anxiety. Um, these are increasing in school age children, and you know, and can often be a factor uh, even if there's something else going on. Um, you know, less common mental health um, you know issues that we're, we're seeing related to school avoidance, things like obsessive compulsive disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, uh, eating disorders, body dysmorphia, um, and then moving out of the mental health realm, um, you know, other student illnesses such as asthma, um, PANDAS and PANS, uh, that's an acronym for uh, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders that are associated with strep infections. Um, and then, you know, any other diagnoses that have sleeping, is sleeping issues um, uh, that go along with them like Hashimoto's disease. You know, and then separate from the medical, uh, another another set of triggers might be discipline or bullying issues uh, at school, and these things can often trigger, um, you know, anxiety, social anxiety, or or school avoidance in in students. We briefly mentioned screen time. That that's another one. Um, you know, school age children are spending a lot of time online and also on social media. Um, research has shown a link between increased anxiety and increased screen time. And what's even more concerning is that, that suicide risk factors, so things like depression, thinking about suicide, making a suicide plan, or even attempting suicide, uh, rise significantly when children spend a, a more time, like two or more hours a day of time online. So as, as social media use is increasing among school-aged children, there's more of a forum for cyberbullying, um, which can lead to social anxiety and, and other problems. The good news is most districts, um, you know, are doing something about this and in, in incorporating, uh, for example, some of Common Sense Media's digital citizenship curriculum, you know, into into their lessons. Um, it's an excellent and a free curriculum, um, and, and you know, and it's it's the idea that students are directly taught the adverse effects of too much screen time and what can happen if they if they post unkind things about about their friends or or other students. And speaking of curricula, more broadly, uh, districts are adopting social-emotional learning, or SEL, curricula to teach the social, emotional, and behavior skills that are required to be successful in school. So not just academically, uh, but socially and beyond. So these are skills um, such as understanding and managing one's emotions, pro-social skills for interpersonal relationships, decision-making, problem-solving. Uh, and so how does all this relate to school avoidance? Well, it's, it's the ability for a 
student to recognize emotions in himself and in others and express them appropriately and uh, if necessary use a strategy to modify a negative emotion uh, thus alleviating it or lessening it um, possibly through a coping mechanism and um, it works basic you know we know that basic cognitive regulation skills can be taught as early as age three um, executive functioning skills emerge around kindergarten you know as the the frontal lobe and prefrontal cortex are growing and you know this continues up through adolescence teenage and even into into the 20s um, so Many of these uh, SEL or social emotional learning curricula have uh, preschool content even uh, and that, that builds up through the grades. So if, you're, if your district is interested in, in exploring SEL programs, uh, there's a, a paper I would recommend from the Harvard Graduate School of Ed, uh, Navigating SEL from the Inside Out, and it compares 25 different programs by their method of instruction and then the skills that are targeted. Um, some, some programs focus more on character development, whereas others might focus more on emotional processes processes. And uh, it's it's a good thing to investigate it and get implemented. Um, we know that strong SEL skills are correlated with gains in academic achievement and, and just overall a better ability to cope with life. And then the, the final thing that I'll mention to, to look out for is something sort of specific to younger children. This often can look like separation anxiety, thinking like, you know, primary grades um, or even children entering kindergarten or TK. Um, and, and that might look like tantrums, um, you know, uh, clinging, clinginess, um, but that can be extreme distress for, for young children. So I think Susan makes some great points, which are all items we should be thinking about in terms of our child find obligation, which I had mentioned earlier. Um, beyond that, you know, I've dealt with many of these issues, and there's really one case that sticks out when Susan's talking about all this for me, um, which I dealt with, uh, in fact, a couple years ago. Uh, the child in that case had been diagnosed with body dysmorphic disorder. And the student was in middle school, so again, kind of speaks to that this isn't always a teenage problem issue, and avoided school grounds or basically any public place because he felt people had um, or were staring and making fun of his hair. So um, his hair looked completely normal, but in his mind, the way his hair looked was always a mess. And he really had a significant body dysmorphic disorder. Uh, and so what we did in that case was we started very slowly. We had assessed the student. We had found out that this was an issue. It was a barrier to the student getting to school um, on time, getting to, to school at all in some cases. Uh, and in that case, in order to help the student feel more comfortable stepping on campus, we had the student visit a local and less crowded coffee shop to show him first that people weren't staring or mocking his hair uh, before we then introduced him onto the school campus. And that seemed to work. It seemed to ease his anxiety about, oh, yeah, nobody's staring at my hair today. Therefore, I feel more comfortable stepping onto campus. Now, that's a more extreme example but I do think that, you know, these examples are things we can think of that are outside of the box um, that may help assist students who have these school refusal issues. Um, you know, although these strategies worked in my case, it's best to keep in mind that each case really should be treated on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, it's also wise to keep in mind the danger of confirmation bias or getting stuck in an answer 
because in the special ed world, the answer really is ever evolving. This speaks to the heart of the myth that all school avoidance cases are due to anxiety because what was anxiety for this child in February, for example, may not be um, anxiety in May. It could be depression. And that's an important point. I think, you know, you might see IEP teams pointing to assessment data that, that you know, shows no, no clinical significance in the area of anxiety from a year ago. And, and I would caution, you know, teams to, to, to look at, at present, what we're seeing at present. And I think that's exactly why it's important when there's sufficient information to suspect a child of having a disability, a school district really is obligated to act on it immediately rather than wait, because waiting on the anxiety piece could be depression three months later. So um, just keep that in mind. Facts of the past don't always justify a bad decision in the present. So we want to keep that in mind as well. That's really important stuff, uh, Jennifer. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking now we've kind of bounced around on family systems, student issues. Susan, what about the, the larger basket of what are called family issues when it comes to school avoidance? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, most commonly any family change such as divorce, possibly custody changes uh, can certainly be a, a trigger. Um, death and illness of a family member was a factor in that uh, 2018 Berkeley Unified case. So is, would death or illness of a family member alone, which is causing attendance issues, trigger a district's child find obligation? Well, it depends. So uh, in that Berkeley case where the decision showed that the district did have an obligation to assess, um, there was death of a parent coupled with attendance issues, and there were also some other outside diagnoses, so central auditory processing disorder, anxiety and depression, uh, you know, and there was a history of the student having received counseling services since, since second grade. You know, a good takeaway from that case is is for the school to align with families in these instances. So if, you know, if we know there's something going on, you know, a death or illness of a family member and attendance issues, um, and really have an open dialogue about the student's symptoms, um, what we're seeing at school, what parents are seeing at home, and what supports are available along the continuum. Generally, we all have the same goal, to, that's to get the student to school. So, um, so really teaming for some, some good proactive first steps, you know, opening up the conversation, establishing relationships and, and listening. You know, districts and school sites can make available a counselor uh, and or a psychologist um, who can talk with the child about what uh, she or he is experiencing. Um, they can brainstorm strategies, uh, establish a, like a system or routine for check-ins and even consider home visits. It really behooves us to address as early as possible um, because we know that reintegration is often more difficult as, as the time away from school increases. And, you know, in cases where there's a behavioral component, you know, school site staff really have the expertise to support families, uh, you know, in making staying home boring or, or not reinforcing for children. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. I'm going to jump right in here. I think it is important to discuss attendance procedures with families up front, and relationships really do matter. Here, districts should also be aware um, that there are required notices for truancy to parents or guardians and other things that districts can utilize um, within the general education uh, supports and systems in place. Usually that's board policy, that's ed code. So this 
is a little bit more geared towards general education supports and systems that districts have in place rather than the special education child find. So I just want to make that distinguish, distinguishing point before I launch into this. However, districts, um, districts do have form letters, most of them, that they use to document that required notice was sent if there are truancy or school avoidance issues up front. So if we are dealing with a student who is having more and more truancy issues, there are letters. However, if absences continue, most school districts have a process called SARB. SARB stands for the School Attendance Review Board, which is a team made up of different stakeholders to discuss different interventions and supports to help get this student back into school, okay? So most folks think of uh, SARB hearings as punitive because the Department of Justice can fine parents or hold parents then criminally accountable for their child not attending school. But in my opinion, when SARB is used appropriately, it can be a carrot and not just a stick. What do I mean by that? For example, if a child is avoiding school due to bullying issues or the perception of bullying issues, then we won't address the bullying by fining the parent. It's important to consider here the barrier to attendance and how to address or overcome that barrier. If the barrier truly is bad parenting, then use SARB as a stick by fining the parent or ordering parent training courses. But if the issue is something different, consider the carrot approach as well. Yeah, I think you know something to consider is uh, the IEP team can discuss um, you know the possible effects of SARB on a student if, if it's a student you know with an with an IEP um, you know to to kind of talk about that before going down that route. Yeah, and I think that is a good point. There is crossover between this general education approach and special education, and I do think it's important for IEP teams to consider that. Moving on from that, um, there is also a difference under the law between truancy, being a truant, and chronic absenteeism. Um, Ed Code 60901 generally defines chronic absenteeism as a pupil who is absent 10% or more of the time. So while a student's absences may lead to the student being identified as a chronic absentee, that title does not automatically call for the student to also be identified as truant. This is because truancy looks at unexcused absences while chronic absenteeism measures unexcused and excused absences. So without getting too deep in the weeds on this, um, just a quick note that if we do see over 14 excused absences for illness in a given school year, any further excused absences should be verified by a physician's note or marked unexcused. The requirements on this can be found in CCR um, 420 and 421. So that's five CCR 420 and 421 for anyone who's interested in more information on that topic. Thank you, Jennifer. So Susan, uh, with with Jennifer's discussion of the SAR process, just dif- difference, differences there is in, in terms of chronic absenteeism versus truancy in general, doctor's notes, you name it. What can districts do to monitor and make sure to catch attendance problems for their kids? 
Yeah, it's, it's a good idea to have a procedure where, you know, possibly the district administration and or site secretaries or, or someone at the sites um, reviews attendance reports on a regular basis to look for patterns. So we, we spoke about the Lucia Mar Unified case. So this student had increasing absences and tardies that were excused. So, you know, there, there was a legitimate physician's note about uh, GI problems and sleep problems. And, and oftentimes, um, excused absences go unnoticed, even, even if there is a high number. Um, so we need to develop a system to monitor trends regardless of the status of the absence. And, uh, you know, another proactive step is to provide staff development and, and resources on school avoidance, you know, the triggers and our responsibilities um, to, you know, to possibly case managers, to site secretaries, counselors, anyone who, who may come across uh, these issues in students. And uh, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America has some good basic resources to, to check out. Yeah, and I think this really gets into maybe a segue for our next myth, which is School avoidance is not an issue if it happens to be a uh, or affecting a general education student. So if a general education student's affected, that's not a problem. If it's a special education student, it's a problem. Um, I, I don't think that that's true. I think that um, that is discriminating between general education students and special education students, but it's also not understanding our child find obligations, as we had talked about before, when we're talking about seeking out and serving children who are within the general education population. So as we had mentioned before, general education children can also feel that pressure to succeed. We need to remember that many special education children were general education until they were found IDEA eligible. Again, we call this obligation child find. So it's important to understand that even though these are sneaky triggers, they're triggers. Um, and how does the school district comply again with its child find obligations? Well, I think the first step is to look for these red flag triggers. Even though they're sneaky red flag triggers, they're triggers, um, suggesting that a general education student may be struggling. As we've seen, or as we've been discussing, school avoidance could be a trigger to consider child find obligations, and when in doubt, we should be assessing. The next step would be considering assessment for special education and determining the areas the district wants to assess, which will depend on what the barrier to attendance is. You keep hearing us say this, because if it is mental health related, then the district will want to consider a social emotional type assessment. If it's behaviorally related, the district may then want to consider including a functional behavior assessment or a behavior assessment in general, maybe some observations, behavioral based observations around the student's routine from home to school. So we can see what that routine looks like and if there are um, antecedents to the behavior or triggers that are occurring um, within this, this child such that they're refusing to attend school. Um, assessors should be thoughtful about how to conduct assessments for children who are not attending school as access to the child in the school setting would be limited or non-existent if the student is 
failing to attend school, right? So we wouldn't be able to have those same observations or same school-based observations. What I would suggest in these um, situations is to seek releases and exchanges of information with treating physicians or any other um, individuals who may have information about the student or the school avoidance. I would talk to the parents. I would make sure to give questionnaires, just do a very thorough, robust review um, about what is happening. Again, observations in the home setting may be an option. Uh, finally, I have also seen a trend in some districts to use absenteeism as a rule out due to environmental factors. Well, I think this approach creates a slippery slope. As a general matter, environmental factors may actually be a rule out for certain eligibility categories, but not a child find rule out. So in other words, when I'm talking about rule out, I'm talking about when we have our child find obligation, we are obligated to assess the student for all suspected areas of disability. After that assessment, when we're talking about is the child eligible for special education, we're then asking ourselves if there are other rule-out factors to consider in terms of eligibility, which may be environmentally related factors. So, for example, did child A begin using drugs and alcohol because he or she was depressed or was child A depressed then turned to drugs and alcohol? So even though the drugs and alcohol are an environmental factor, sometimes it's difficult to parse out whether or not that is a rule-out determinant for um, eligibility. So this topic really could be an entire podcast in and of itself. It's fairly complicated, but a general rule of thumb here to keep in mind is Rule outs are a very high threshold, and the statutory language requires that rule outs be what we call a quote determinative factor. So, we want to make sure that we're reading the rule out language very clearly. Also, the rule out language does not impact every eligibility category per se. So, we want to make sure that we're um, in fact, addressing the rule-outs that correspond with the categories we're um, addressing for this child in the assessment report. So in summary, when assessing under child fine for school avoidance, it really is best to consider any suspicion and thoughtfully analyze the data obtained through a comprehensive, thorough assessment report. Data should come from various sources, including parents, guardians, providers, outside providers, assessment measures, observations, whether that's in school or in the home setting or even on the bus going to school, um, and any records used in monitoring the student's attendance is helpful. Thank you, Jennifer. That's some really important stuff. And as I'm sure our listeners are thinking, as I am right now, um, that discussion really highlights the type of um, fact-driven thoughtful analysis that needs to occur, whether we're measuring a given instance of school avoidance or school avoidance patterns over time for students. This is a, a great conversation, um, but it's also one which we've got a lot more to talk about and we're out of time as of today. So this will conclude part one of our discussion on school avoidance. 
um, and we will be uh, picking this same conversation up at a later date um, it, at for with part two of the discussion. We'll again be joined by Jennifer and Susan, and, and uh, including perhaps some, I assume, some takeaways on, on what you guys see as the most important points in this area. Yes, we want to address what districts should consider asking when these attendance issues arise, how we can help um, talk about school avoidance with families and with the IEP teams, and really dive a little bit into the IEP process uh, more and talk a little bit uh, more about some cases. Great stuff. Thank you to both of you. Please join us for the part two of this discussion. But for now, thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Lozano Smith's podcast today. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today, as well as a whole host of other Lozano Smith, Smith podcasts. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.